0: these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Happy New Year, and welcome to TFM's local books and comics show for Star Trek, and I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and I'm so excited to have back with me, as he is every single episode, the one and only Casey Pettit. How are you, Casey?
1: Hello, I am great, here in the new year, ready for lots of Star Trek books and probably even more comics. Um, especially since those are just rolling in faster than we can catch. But we, I don't know, I, this, this year, I, I'm looking forward to literary tricks. We got so many good things in store and a lot of books I haven't read before and excited to get into those.
0: Me too. I, I'm glad you said that because that's one of the things I think I'm most excited about is a lot of the books that we decided to cover coming up are books that I've never read as well. And so I'm you know, looking forward to being able to experience them with you uh, and be able to come at them fresh. And, you know, we're not going to be getting a ton of Star Trek books in the new year. So uh, I think we're here to keep Star Trek books alive in the way that we can. Like you mentioned, we've got some great comics uh, that are going to be coming out. In fact, we've got a couple good comic reviews before our interview with David Mack talking about his brand new Star Trek book, Harm's Way, which... Is a new Star Trek book that you should pick up. But before we get into all of that, uh just a reminder, of course, you can find us all over social media. We're on Twitter at Trek FM, we're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM, we're on Instagram at Trek FM. There's a listeners-only discussion group called the Babel Conference that you can join. You can talk to listeners from all over the world about all of the shows here going on in the network. And of course, uh you could find us over at Patreon at patreon.com slash trekfm. Casey Pettit, as well as Greg Rosier, are associate producers here for Literary Treks, and they make sure that this show, as well as the entire network, can keep coming to you each and every week. And now, one of the things about that as well is, you know, this is a really big network. And we can't do it on our own. So we need your help. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm and become part of our team. I know over on the 602 Club, Christy and I have got some special episodes we're gonna be only giving to Patreon members. Casey and I may even may even be doing that. Who knows? Uh and so if you want special content, but you also want to make sure that TFM continues to live, go to patreon.com slash FM Of course, you can find the entire website at trek.fm and see all the shows that are happening here. We've got big anniversaries like Deep Space Nine turning 30. We're still continuing the 20th anniversary and now, well, 21st anniversary of Enterprise as we're walking through that show. We've got other anniversaries going to be coming up. We'll celebrate and so many other things we're going to be covering. So it's going to be great. But Casey... Over the holiday season, we had a couple of comics drop. And so the first uh, that I wanted to talk to you about was we raved, uh, which was strange, about Resurgence. Because (laughs) I don't think either of us thought a comic book that was introducing a video game was going to be any good. But Resurgence 2 has hit. And what did you think about this second issue?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, this second issue, it's, I mean... In short, it's still pretty good. I think the first was probably better, but I think we're kind of in that, you know, middle chapter of uh, a story here. But, um, you know, it's introducing more characters. I'm starting to see a little bit more, I think, um, how this could turn into a video game, like with some of the characters and like maybe – I've not – I don't even know if there's a trailer out there for the game or or anything, but like I could kind of imagine out of some of these characters who the player might be in the game. And it's just kind of a fun story, you know, really getting to know a lot of these characters, seeing old characters like, uh, whatever his name was, Jono something, uh, who was the human slash Tolarian. And, uh, you know, they're playing a big, the Tolarians are playing a big part, uh, in this story. So it's really interesting to see, you know, I mean, just even on its own, it's a, it's a decent comic. It's got a good story going and I'm still just really interested to see where it ends and how then it would tie into the game. And I don't know about you. I'm not really a gamer, but I, it may end up having to pick this game up if it's on a, a, a platform that I have, which I don't think it is.
0: Yeah, I, I'm... The thing that I really thought was special about this story was the way that it was continuing to use things that we had seen in the next generation specifically. And, you know, to me... That was really cool. They're pulling all of this stuff together. And, you know, in many ways, and as we'll talk about with uh, David in our feature, you know, that's one of the hallmarks of good Star Trek storytelling outside the series, right? When you are able to pull together uh, these disparate elements and put them into a new story. And so I really appreciated the way that they were doing that. I thought that that made the story, um, you know, feel in some ways more important than you would have thought possible uh, when, you know, you didn't, uh, again, getting into this, knowing it's going to be a video game or whatever, you know, this connecting with other elements, I think, makes this better. And so I really appreciated that thought process. But time... Behind the creation of this comic, Uh, and it's made it much more interesting to me, and I've enjoyed reading it. Like that's, in all honesty, uh, Star Trek comics for me personally are very hit and miss, and Mm -hmm. I found this to be really good, Uh, and and something that I am very much enjoying reading. And, and like you, I'm I'm interested as well, just to see where it is going to go. And so, uh, you know, for me, resurgence is is one comic here that I'm actually really looking forward to every time it comes out because I felt like they've continued to build the story in a way that has really piqued my interest. So, uh, and in all honesty, again, I did not see that coming.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. I think this is this would be one of those series that um even once the game is out, I, I'd like to see where they would continue to go with the story with this ship and crew, you know, mm-hmm. with all these different characters. The artwork is really good in this comic too. You know, like the characters uh yeah. have their distinctive looks and everything. Um but, you know, when you see Leah Brahms, you you know it's her and um even the first page has kind of a flashback to um Leah Brahms and and Jordy on The Enterprise D and mm-hmm. it, it looks like it came out you know from that time period. So it it's right. yeah. I I'm I'm looking forward to more. I, I hope the I hope these comics are more than just a prequel.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Uh well, next, um this is something that's very exciting to me is the fact that we're continuing a story that we were getting in Strange New Worlds. Uh, the Illyrian Enigma, we got issue number one, and of course this is following the fact that Unuchin Riley has been arrested for lying to Starfleet about being an Illyrian, and we're actually telling a story that I thought we were going to be telling in the next season. Mm-hmm. I can't believe we're doing this story as a comic, but to me... That's what makes this worth reading because this seems to be a very important linchpin in what's going to happen in season two of Strange New Worlds, which that made this fantastic to read. Like, I was very excited for the fact that this was coming out, but then after reading it, I find myself even more excited because it, it feels like they're actually telling a really important story.
1: Yeah, I'm right there with you. And I mean, this is just another entry by Kirsten Beyer and Mike Johnson, you know, veteran uh, comic book authors. Kirsten obviously, uh, you know, has written the novels, but is also working on the show. So we know how t- how closely tied this is going to be to the show. Um, and yeah, I, I I totally agree with you. I'm very excited about this comic. There's a lot going on. I hope you know, I hope we still get to see something of this in the show, but like this little adventure that they're going on. It feels like the show, like the characters are very well written and um it just seems like a really exciting story and you know, we we're going to have a, a Strange New Worlds novel coming up, but that's set during the first season. Uh so this being set between the seasons is a nice bridge which is exactly what it is between the two seasons uh until we get that later in 2023 so uh, I I feel like the next issue of this one can't come soon enough I I would really like to get back into it Yeah I agree wholeheartedly with you uh you know this was
0: I think a really well done comic to begin Uh, the series, Um, I think the thing that uh, I really loved about it was um, that, again, it's telling a story that's really important uh, to to Star Trek, uh, Strange New Worlds, and the fact that they're doing that is phenomenal here in the comic. You know, you want to make these... You want to make these comics feel important enough that people would want to read them in the first place and and so to tell this type of story was was great um i i think i think if there's any slight quibble that i might have about the the issue i think the art is good but i don't think that the art wa- blew me away and that's something that um, I, I wish, like all the characters look very familiar, which is great. I think they did a good job in that. I think I just would have liked just slightly more detail um, in in the artwork itself. Um, but again, the fact that all the characters look like themselves is really important. Um, and you know, I, I it it doesn't in any way. Uh, hurt my uh, excitement for, you know, what's coming up uh, here and the rest of this series.
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I, you know, I I agree with you. The art was the, the one place that probably could have used a little bit more. Um, but again, at the same time, it's got a strong story, which is what's really important in these comics. And I've read a lot of the comics that I hated the artwork, but, you know, had a decent enough story, and I think that's uh, enough. And and again, yeah, like, since all the characters really, for the most part, look like themselves and, and sound like themselves, too, in their dialogue, um, that's, you know, a, a great thing here. Yeah, 100% agree with you.
0: I can't wait to see where this goes next. But I also can't wait to get into our feature where we're going to be talking about Harm's Way with David Mack. So, Casey, why don't we get over there so we don't leave him in the green room with Dayton too long?
1: Yeah, let's go wake up. Let's go wake him up.
0: Well, it is so good to be back uh, at Literary Treks here. And what I love is that we are starting off 2023 the right way, which is the best way to have Literary Treks. And that is to have an author with us to talk about their brand new book and over the christmas holidays over the whatever holiday you celebrate david allen mack released a brand new star trek book called harm's way it is an original series novel and david it is just so good to have you back
2: here in the show as well as with a brand new star trek book it's great to be back. Uh, even though you keep using my middle name, which I do not use as part of my credit on books.
1: <laughs> I am credited true, true. on book it's covers on as
2: I am just David <laughs> Mack on a book cover. Oh, man. The only times I, I, I mean, I haven't been called David Allen Mack since, you know, my youth. I mean, that was how my mother told me I was in trouble.
0: Well, so do you use that on Twitter just so people are able to find you more easily?
2: Well, not even that. It was just a matter of I was late to the Twitter ball game. So by the time I was trying to pick a handle, I was trying to pick you know something that was just my name, but somebody had already taken that. And then I was trying other variations. I tried Dave Mac. uh, I tried David Mac Author. Somebody, believe it or not, had grabbed that. And so I was trying to find like any kind of a simple thing, and I didn't really realize at the time that your handle can be anything, that you'd have a screen name and that people right. would just learn to recognize your handle. If I had known that, I probably would have picked a different handle. But out of frustration, I finally <laughs> just added my middle name to my Twitter handle just to make it distinct from all the other David Max, even though I don't use that as my you right. know, professional writing credit, with the only exception to that being my Wolverine novel. And that was the result of a gentleman's agreement between me and a comic book artist named David Mack, who has worked mm. on such well-known properties as Daredevil, Kabuki. Uh, he's worked on, uh, you know, doing title sequences for the uh, the Captain America films. Um, he's in, you know, his uh, I work, his work with uh, Echo, I think, is uh, coming to HBO. He's going to be a director on that series. So he and I are friends. And we had some issues where, you know, back in the 90s when we were both starting out, uh, we were both working for companies like Marvel and DC at the same time. And the people who were processing things like our invoices didn't always understand we were two different people. Oh, no. And they didn't pay attention. And they got sloppy in one of those cases and uh, ended up putting his social security number or, no, my social security number on money they paid to him. And so I got sued by the IRS for not reporting his income.
0: Oh, my gosh.
2: And fortunately, the company in question took responsibility for it and fixed it all. And we didn't have to do anything. But that was the sort of thing where at that point it ceased being funny. And we said, "Okay, this is no longer fun and games. This is now business. This is money. So we made a gentleman's agreement. Which was, you know, if he did any TV writing, film writing, TV writing, TV writing credits, anything that would be involved the Writers Guild of America, he would add a middle initial. If I went near any comic book properties ever again, because at that point, my only comic book work was a four-issue miniseries for Star Trek uh, at Wildstorm back in 2001. Yeah, great series, by the way. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it, Uh, but I promised him that if I went near a comic book property in any medium ever again, I would add my middle name just so his fans knew it wasn't him. So we have had this gentleman's agreement in place now for over 20 years, closing in maybe on 30 years. Uh, and it's worked well for us so far. We've remained friends at this point. I'm actually his webmaster. I take care of his website. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I take care of his website for him. Um, so yeah, he's a, he's a great guy. A terrific guy. Um, that's but yeah, you know, we, but you know, we sort of stake this out and we actually now, he and I co-own the davidmack.com website and we share it and it says, you know, which David Mac are you looking for him or me? Mm,
0: that's really smart.
2: Yeah. We, that's uh, really smart. Yeah, I mean, I'll spare you the whole long story of how it came to be, but, you know, eventually we realized that there was, you know, nothing to be gained by fighting over internet real estate, and we had everything to gain by being cordial and professional and uh, just basically being good cyber neighbors. Which is so Star Trek of you in the end, right? Yeah, I mean, well, it's also, you know, it's part of a sort of a whole Buddhist philosophy that uh, I've tried to embrace over the last few decades. Uh, the idea of do no harm, don't act out of anger, don't act out of envy, uh, you know, don't act out of pride, don't act out of greed, uh, try to act in ways that, you know, serve a greater good or serve someone else. So, and it just it seemed like the sort of thing we're sharing, you know, something that Star Trek tells us is good, uh, sharing seemed to be both the logical way forward, and it just seemed to be good business and good karma.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I just uh, I love that because it's a it's a great way I think one to to start off uh, the the first interview of the year as we hit 2023, and I think you know just in the end, great advice for for everyone to take, especially uh, in the online platforms. Um, but we are here to talk about Harm's Way, which is your brand new uh, TOS novel, and uh, really loved the way in which, and I think a lot of fans, especially if you've been in the Litverse, as so many of us have, that you are able to weave Vanguard back into the story. Uh, and so I know you helped create that series with, uh, you know, Kevin Dillmore and uh, Dayton Ward. So I wanted to just hear about you kind of being able to weave that TOS story back into Uh, everything as well as just what the inspiration then for harm's way was.
2: Well, it started about uh, 13 months ago in December of 2021. I hadn't heard from my star Trek editors in quite some time. We all had been living in isolation due to COVID as so many people were. And I was basically most of my energy at that time was devoted to promoting the release of the star Trek Coda trilogy, on which I had been working with Dayton Ward, who wrote book one, uh, Moments Asunder, and James Swallow, who wrote book two, The Ashes of Tomorrow. And I had been focused heavily on book three, Oblivion's Gate. And one of the sort of in jokes that Dayton and uh, James and I had, we had created a private Twitter direct message channel just for the three of us. Specifically, to talk about that trilogy issues related to that trilogy promotional issues, just so that when we would see that we were messaging each other in that particular channel, we knew it was work related and not just personal, so we had this thing, and <laughs> uh, I think Dayton created it because he named it Wormhole Death Cannon. <laughs> <laughs> and Canon was spelled with one n like you know the Star Trek you know Canon or, you know, the the canon works of Shakespeare or whatever. Uh, And so we had, you know, and because the wormhole was part of our story, we had this private Trek channel for the three of us called Wormhole Death Cannon. And by the end of it, we had decided this would be a terrific name for our, you know, our latest uh, next band name will be. So we created the fake band Wormhole Death Cannon, uh, and we created their, uh, you know, we, we, we created a whole fake concert tour for them and a concert tour t-shirt with tour dates on the back that said things like, you know, uh, Starbase 47, uh, you know, Davidia, whatever, you know, Romulus, uh, Bejor, Deep Space Nine, whatever. So we, we had all the uh, sort of all these sort of little in-jokes. And so... We made originally just three for ourselves. And then we realized, you know, there's some other people who have helped us get here. So we made copies of them for uh, like folks like John Ben Sitters at uh, Star Trek Licensing and a few other folks, our copy editors, uh, people who had helped us brainstorm the ideas. And then the last two I had had made for our editors, Margaret and Ed at uh, Simon & Schuster. So I arranged a lunch meeting with them. In December of 2021. The three of us bravely all left our homes. We convened on a diner that was roughly equidistant between the three of us. And we met for lunch and we had a lovely afternoon having lunch together. And I gave them their shirts and they were both very touched. And, uh, you know, I think I had a tuna melt and I think maybe she, you know, Margaret had a waffle or something. I'm pretty sure, you know, Ed ate a salad or something. But at the end of it, I said, so Uh, As long as I got you both here, uh, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but is there any more work (laughs) to be had? Because I've had no work. Is there any work? And they took pity upon me, and they said, well, actually, buddy, you should ask. We're trying to fill a slot right now uh, in the late 2022 schedule. Uh, It it would have to be something you'd start on right away. They said, can you start right away? I said, I can start now. I can start writing it in front of you here at the table. What do you need? (laughs) Uh, and they said, Well, we want something for the original series, yeah. And then Ed said, But we would like you to make it a crossover with Vanguard. I said, Really? He said, Yeah. He says, We've been doing a lot of these monthly ebook sale promotions where we sell the ebooks at 99 cents, and Vanguard has been a consistently strong uh, seller whenever we do a, a promotion involving it. They said, So we think that there is. market to be built here you know even this many years out vanguard still is getting new fans word of mouth continues to propel the series let's see if we can sell it to more readers of the original series and then use the folks who like vanguard to maybe get them interested in the original series see if we can cross-pollinate these two audiences and help them both grow a little bit i said that sounds great and I said, so how are you, what are you seeing? Are you seeing a story uh, that's just part of the middle of the Vanguard continuity, or do you want me to expand it? Because I said, because Dayton and Kevin and I pretty, pretty solidly tied it off at the end, and I don't want to mess with that. And they said, well, we leave it to you. You tell us. How can we get another Vanguard story that ties in with the original series and is consistent with both? And I said, okay, I will go away, and I will think about this. So I did, I went home and I looked at the continuity of the entire Vanguard saga, uh, all seven novels, plus the anthology declassified with the four novellas and the post-series finale wrap up and the couple of eBooks that are technically prequels. And, And I looked at it all and I compared it against the original series. And eventually I realized, okay, there's not really that many gaps in the narrative, where there's room to fit in a novel-sized story. And the other thing I realized that I wanted to do, as soon as I was thinking about this, I'm like, well, I have the Enterprise, because I'm doing TOS. So I have a Constitution-class starship. I don't want to use the Endeavor. As much as I love the Endeavor crew and their story, two Constitution-class ships in the same story could get a little confusing, especially with names as similar as Endeavor and Enterprise. And really, what kind of a story needs two of these heavy cruisers involved in the same plot? So I said, all right, let's focus on the continuity of the scout ship, Sagittarius. Very different. You know, it has a different looking name, different sounding name. It's a little 14-person scout ship. It's got a very different tenor of life aboard the ship than the Enterprise has. It'll make a nice contrast. So, then what I had to do was go through all seven books and say, where is there a period of time where we don't know what the Sagittarius was up to? Was Did I leave any block of time unaccounted for? And eventually, I found that I had in the fifth book of the Vanguard series, which is titled Precipice, that book covers an entire year of time, most of 2266, and it, so it overlaps with like seasons two and three of the original series. And I was looking at it and I said, okay, most of the story of Precipice focuses on uh, you've got Toprin and Pennington engaged in one storyline. You've got Cervantes Quinn and Bridie Mac uh, doing a Starfleet intelligence thing in another storyline. The Endeavor is sort of running the sea story. There's a parallel thing going on with the Klingons and Reyes and some stuff going on on the station. There's a lot going on in this book. And I realized the one crew, the one story arc that doesn't have anything going on in this book is the Sagittarius. They dropped off the story map, I realized, for almost a year of story time. Like they just, whatever they were doing between the, you know, events of book four Open Secrets by Dayton uh, and Kevin, and what they were doing when they came back in book seven, What Judgments Come, well, we had no idea. Somehow we just let them fall off the map. I was like, well, this is an opportunity. Now I went through and I made sure it wouldn't contradict anything established in Vanguard. I reread, I made sure to check all the memory beta entries. I went through the manuscripts. I went through the finished books and I was pretty sure I'm like, okay, there's nothing that contradicts any of these ideas. So I I found a window of time where the Sagittarius was unspoken for, where I had a general idea of what the enterprise was doing and what else was going on in Star Trek. What else was going on in Vanguard? And I found a nice little window of time, just a perfect little window in roughly June to July of 2266, which puts it around dead center, the middle of book five precipice of the Vanguard saga. And it also puts it roughly one month after the season two episode, Amok Time, where Spock goes home and has his whole sort of uh, terrible far encounter with to and Stan and all these guys and nearly, you know, kills Kirk and everything. It's and like the worst specific. sexual
0: awakening ever.
2: Exactly. Like, uh, and then on top of that, it also happens one week after the events of the second season episode, the doomsday machine where Kirk has now seen his friend uh, and peer, a flag officer, Matt Decker. He has seen Matt Decker, Uh, give his life for nothing, basically lose his mind, go mad, uh, has lost his crew, loses his ship, nearly destroys Kirk's ship in the process. Uh, So Kirk has a lot to emotionally process here. He's going through a lot of stuff. And once I realized the timing, and I realized where we were going to be in the continuity, I said, okay, there's the story. Our two big prominent series leads, Kirk and Spock, have both at this moment in time, Just endured massive emotional hits to their psyches. So that's what's going to be going on in their heads. I realized that's an opportunity because the show, TOS, never really did that. They would deal with the tragedy in the episode and next week it would always be forgotten. But in the books, we have the opportunity to dig deeper, find the deep psychology going on here. So I saw that opportunity. So I'm like, okay, so Spock is dealing with Amok time, Kirk is dealing with the Doomsday Machine, and to a lesser extent, Spock is also dealing with fallout from the Doomsday Machine. So that gave me a great backdrop. It gave me an immediate sort of insight into the psychology, um, the emotional backstories I'd be working with from my Enterprise crew. Uh, And then I just decided to have some fun with my Sagittarius crew, and I realized that one of the changes that had occurred between when we last saw the Sagittarius crew And when they finally came back, there used to be this whole running gag with the chief medical officer on Sagittarius, Dr. Lisa Babbitts, that she was a germaphobe, and it was a whole big thing. And in the later books of Vanguard, we kind of, well, forgot about that. It just didn't seem to fit the stories we were doing, and so we kind of glossed over it and seemed to forget about it. I said, well, here's an opportunity to explain how she experiences personal growth in the course of an adventure and overcomes or at least learns to live with this aspect of herself so i'm like okay so there's the emotional storyline that will take us through the vanguard section of the storybook uh and then beyond that it was just a matter of okay and now what kind of a story puts us together and i thought well let's pull classic antagonist let's pull kang kang will be fun kang gets you mara or mara so you have kang you have mara And I researched, I made sure I watched Day of the Dove, I made sure that uh, there's a plausible explanation for why nobody here remembers any of these events in Day of the Dove. The Beta 12 entity, it said in the episode, it's messing with their memories. They don't know which memories are real, it's suppressing real memories, and it's creating fake memories. So as long as they're under the influence of the entity, which is the entirety of the episode we can't know for sure that any of their interactions are proceeding from genuine memory. All we know for sure is Kang and Kirk have met before. So I was like, okay, so there's my, there's my template. I said, that's a great opportunity. That could be a great villain. Now I know my continuity. I see where everybody's at emotionally. Everybody's in a great conflicted place. Let's throw all the toys in the box and see what happens. And that's how it happened. That's uh, how we got uh, from, you know, no, from nothing to a story in about two weeks. Jeez. And, and I mean, like, that's just a
1: whirlwind of, uh, you know, story ideas there, too, to, to uh, weave into the story. And I guess, like, you touched on Kirk some, and I we're, as we're reading this book, where you, you, you touched on a lot, actually, uh, you know, his fallout from the Doomsday Device Confrontation, what happened with Mac Decker... Um, we actually get to see Kirk struggling with his ego. Um, he's comparing himself to Decker, wondering if he's making his own right decisions. Um, but what we really get to see is something we don't see a lot in Star Trek of his struggle with an almost not procrastination, but kind of with writing this letter to Decker's family uh, and, and what to tell them. And I don't know if you could just kind of talk about like what you, you know, what, what was going through your mind as far as um, what he was going to write in that letter?
2: Well, with the, uh, the storyline about, yeah, with the storyline about Kirk and the letter home to Decker's widow and uh, also to Decker's son, who is Matt Decker uh, from Star Trek, the motion picture. um, What I had here was a situation where Kirk, he wasn't Decker's commanding officer. So he's not the one who has to write the formal Starfleet, letter home it's not his job it's not his duty but he feels morally compelled to do it this was his friend and more importantly kirk was there he was a witness he was with the man at the end or at least up to you know as close as he could be to being with the man at the end and so he feels an obligation to this guy who used to be his friend uh he has a sense of what matt decker has been through. And so he wants to write this letter, and it's also in some ways a callback uh, to the first Vanguard book, Harbinger. I don't know if you guys had a chance to read that or if you did. If, it may have been a long time ago, so you might not remember. But there's a sequence in Harbinger where Kirk, who's one of the guest stars of the book kicking off the series, uh, he has to go and meet with a character named Robert D'Amato who we remember from the season three TOS episode, that which survives, at least I'm pretty sure that's his episode. Um, and D'Amato, you know, who at this time is just a you know junior officer aboard the ship um, is married to a woman named Oriana D'Amato, who is killed with the rest of the crew of the USS Bombay uh, in, uh, in the first book uh, in, a, in an encounter with the Tholians. And the news reaches Kirk And this is still relatively early in his command. Like, this is just after, uh, you know, maybe where no man has gone before. Uh, So, you know, he's relatively still new to the Enterprise. He's lost people maybe in action before, but this is his first time as the commanding officer of a capital ship, where he has to go and not just write a letter home. He has to go down below decks, visit one of his junior officers, and tell that man his wife is dead. He's got to tell it to him face to face. And he realizes this is the hardest damn thing I've ever done. Why are there no courses at Starfleet Academy when you're in command training? Why the hell don't they teach you how to talk to people? Why do they not prepare us for this? Wouldn't wouldn't it have been useful if somebody had thought, and now we're going to teach you how to tell somebody that someone they love has been killed? or you know that their kids are dead, or you know, tell a kid their father is gone. Uh, he's like, that would have been useful. That would have been a useful skill. Instead, I have to figure this out myself. And so it's a callback to that, where he's grappling with that kind of a moment in Harbinger. And now when we see him again in harm's way, he's a more seasoned officer. He's lost people. He's written a number of these types of letters home now by this point. But this one's different. It's his friend. It's a peer. Uh, it's, it's someone who commanded a ship just like his, someone who did everything right, still lost his crew. And that's, what's got Kirk shaken is he watched, you know, he he reviewed the facts. He knows Decker made rational decisions at every stage. He made selfless decisions at every stage. And yet it still all ended in tragedy. It still ended with uh, all of Decker's crew killed in front of Decker to the point where Decker goes mad, second-guessing himself. Uh, Decker loses his will, steals, uh, first, all, first tries to commandeer the Enterprise, nearly destroys the Enterprise, then commandeers a shuttle, and in some weird fit of you know guilt, basically sacrifices himself to the doomsday machine as if this is going to make a damn bit of difference, except that in the course of so doing, he shows the Enterprise crew the vulnerability in the Doomsday Machine that they realize they can exploit by using the uh, Constellation, by sacrificing that ship. Uh, so he's basically conflicted by all this because, you know, now he's been sort of flying by the seat of his pants down for a year and a half, two years as Enterprise Captain. And he's been going on all these away missions when technically he really shouldn't be. He should be letting his first officer do that. But, you know, that's just who he is. He likes to be on the ground. He's a micromanager. He likes to be in the thick of the action. He's an adrenaline junkie. But now he's sort of watched what happens to Decker. Decker went down hard. And now suddenly Kirk is second-guessing himself. If a guy as good as Decker can go down that hard, why do I think it can't happen to me? What makes me so special? You know, Decker was a commodore. He, he had decades of experience on me, and he still went down hard. What makes me think I'm so much better? What if I'm just an ego case? What if I'm wrong? What if I'm, you know, all these times I leave the ship with Spock because I want to lead the away mission. What if I really belong on the bridge? What if my ship actually needs me here? It's like one of his big regrets, or actually one of the things that haunts him about what happens with the Constellation and the Doomsday Machine is, is he realizes, you know, Decker tried to save his crew by beaming them down to this planet. But then the doomsday machine destroys the planet and kills the crew. And one of the things that kind of bothers Kirk at this point is all those crewmen who he tried to save, it's nice that he tried to save them, but didn't they deserve a chance to die at their post doing their job? Couldn't they have done more good if they had been allowed to stay at their post? You know, what happens when a captain doesn't trust his crew? So again, these are all questions haunting him because he's a micromanager. And now he's watching what happens when you don't trust your crew. You might think you're doing the right thing for them, but are you really just taking away from them the chance to meet their end, doing something noble, doing something right, being in a position where they might be able to do something as opposed to just making them helpless victims. So It's really, it's a case where he's watched a much more seasoned starship commander than him and a much more seasoned leader of men just completely disintegrate and it just shakes him. It's just that moment where someone you idolize, someone you looked up to, somebody you trusted just falls apart and you witness every moment of it and you realize this person I thought was just beyond reproach disintegrated. What does that say about me? What What if I disintegrate? Am I that much better? And so that's what he's dealing with. He's, he's watching his idol fall, and it shakes him.
0: And I think it's something that's so perfect for Kirk to have to be going through, I think, partly because, you know, this is something to which a lot of people are going to look to him in the same way, you know, he looked to Decker Mm -hmm. And so to have him wrestling with this it just creates a really interesting thought process then as you're watching you know later episodes of the series or the movies or those kind of things when you're thinking about you know the way people idolize Kirk and and then you know in the end you the bones even says it: you're human you Mm know and you know. Wanting to live is what makes you human, you know? (laughs) Wanting to stay alive is what makes you human. Um, And I think that really made for such an interesting story. And then the question that he ends up with, okay, how do I write this letter? The the biggest thing is, is that, you know, Decker doesn't die in the heroic way that would be easy to say... To their family, yeah, you know, he died and he killed the doomsday machine, and like we're all safe yeah. because of it. You know, that's not what happens, and so he's left with the question: Do I lie to them, or do I tell them the the truth? What do I do here? And and you know, is a beautiful lie beautiful? It is a lie sometimes what we need, which is a really interesting, you know, quandary. I. Mean,
2: that's McCoy's point of view. He's saying yeah, that the sixties were a white lie. Not lying explicitly and not like saying, you know, not, not fabricating events, not saying, well, Decker's the one who destroyed the machine or whatever, but simply couching it in the language of he gave his life in an effort to show us how to win. He showed us how to beat the machine and he gave his life to do it. Technically, that's true. It's an obfuscation of the fact that Decker's real driving force at that point was guilt uh, and mania it gives him more credit perhaps than he really deserves but do you want to tell that to the woman who loved him and has been left behind do you want to tell that to his son who idolized him do you want to tell a young boy your father cracked at the end uh because he tried to do the right thing his crew got killed he lost confidence in himself he nearly got another ship's crew killed. Uh, And then he stole a shuttle, went off on a bender and crashed it into something because he just felt so guilty he wanted to die. No, you don't say that to a young boy. You tell the kid he did everything he could for his crew. He did everything he could for his ship. He was up against a force that was just so much more powerful than he could understand. But in the end, he saw a possibility. And at the last minute, he gave his life to show us how to beat the machine. He died in order to teach us what we needed to do. We took the information that your father bravely gave us and using that information, we were able to stop the threat and we, it was possible because of what your father did, which technically is true. It just gives, it puts a a gloss of maybe a more noble motivation on the actions of Commodore Decker. But in, this is a case where, you know, there's one thing, there's one set of facts are going to be reported to Starfleet, which are going to be squirreled away in the archives of Starfleet Command as part of the official log, the official record, that's not what you put in the condolence letter to the widow and the son. There's a reason why, you know, sometimes white lies are the lubricant that keeps society running you have to be sensitive to the grief of the woman who loved him the grief of the son who idolized him you don't tell them that he cracked the end you give them that consolation of saying he was a good man and he went to his end bravely, showing us the way forward because that's what they need And that's what Kirk needs. And the thing is, he's denying it to himself, but it's not until McCoy explains it to him. McCoy telling him, this is what you need to tell them because it's what they need to hear. He's also realizing, this is what you need to tell yourself, Jim. He's realizing Jim needs to hear this. Jim needs to internalize this white lie to salve his own pain.
0: Yeah, just... it. uh... I keep thinking of, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi saying, you know, what I told you from was from a certain true. point of view. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Exactly. You know, but I, I think part of that too, is that, you know, it, of course in that story, you know, Obi-Wan realizes Luke might not be ready to hear the truth just yet. Right. That's um, right. Also, that he's hiding a, a much darker truth. Exactly. And that there's a time for the truth, but somebody actually has to be ready for the truth as well. You know, uh, and so I think that's really um something that, you know, like you're getting at here at this point, mm-hmm. you know, the mother and the son are not going to be ready for the full on truth of exactly what happened right. in the moment of grief. Later on, that might be something that they could hear, uh, but that's that's not going to be helpful at all for either of them in this moment. And so right,
2: like, I, I mean, I can imagine a great story moment in a novel set like. 20 years later, where, you know, or I'm not sure. I have to look at the timing. Maybe that's a little bit too long, but a number of years later, like maybe there's a point where young Matt Decker coming up through the command ranks has access to Starfleet records that he didn't have access to before. And he doesn't realize what he's getting into. Like, I don't even know if maybe some other writer has already done this. Maybe, you know, a, a moment where Matt Decker or young Will Decker digs into the story of his father and realizes the terrible truth that he was told this beautiful story by Jim Kirk about the heroism of his father. There could be a great story moment in Will Decker realizing my father was no hero, but that doesn't mean he was a bad man. Well, just because the way he went down. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, you can accept that, you know, maybe something you were told about your parent wasn't true or it changes you know, your conception or your understanding of something after the fact without it changing the fact that you still love them and that, you know, they were still a good person. You can accept that they were flawed and made mistakes, Um, but, you know, you have to be at a point where you're emotionally ready to cope with that truth. If nobody's already done it, I should look into that. That could actually be a beautiful story worth writing. Yeah.
0: I, I think that's what's so cool about that, too, is that I think every single person on the planet has gone through that moment of, you know, realizing that their parents aren't perfect. Right. There's that moment where yep. that realization comes to you. For some people, it comes much earlier than others, mm-hmm. unfortunately, uh, for, you know, various terrible reasons. But yeah. for a lot of people, it just there's that moment as you're growing up and you're like, oh, yeah, my, my parents aren't like perfect. That's. You know, and yeah. it, it's kind of a you start revelation. To see them as human, beings. yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, I actually i mean, without going into too much detail, there was a moment similar to that over this holiday break where I was having a talk with my father, you know, and I learned some things about my late mother that I didn't know, and you know she wasn't perfect. I learned that there were things she did that maybe were not the greatest things ever uh, I could question why she made the decisions she did. And I can accept that she maybe made some bad decisions, but it doesn't change the fact that I love her. I can accept that she was a flawed person who made flawed decisions without it changing the fact that I love her and I still miss her. But it does help me understand her better after the fact and it helps me understand better the circumstances she left behind. And in a way, that's a good thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things I think was really interesting about this, that, you know, you have kirk dealing with this aftermath of the doomsday device but then you have spock dealing with this aftermath and this basically uncertain logic uh after his experience uh, in a monk time where truly his logic has become uncertain exactly he's having trouble relating to logic in the way in which he used to um and and I think you, you, what you do so beautifully is you basically put him on the path to become the Spock from Star Trek VI, who says that, you know, logic is only the beginning of wisdom, not, not the, the end. end. Right. Right. And so, um, and that was a story that I really gravitated towards because, you know, Spock- He's a, he's a
2: child of two parents who are of yes. two worlds. And he's, tr- he's realized that up until this point in his adulthood, he has- expended almost all his effort to try and be the son that he thinks his father wants him to be. And this is the first moment where he starts considering, maybe I should try to be the son my mother wants me to be. And it's only now, like, you know, he's in his 30s at this point. He's a senior officer. He's a commander at this point. I mean, this is not a, a man who is without life experience. But he's only just now starting to grapple with the competing tides, the competing tidal forces of his mixed ancestry, uh, and what that really means human versus Vulcan, emotion versus logic, um, the maternal influence versus the paternal influence. Which uh, tradition, which family does he want to honor? Is there a way he can honor both? Uh, but this is the first time where he's really sort of had to ask himself the question. You know, after all these years of trying to be the man my father wants me to be, maybe, you know, what would happen if I tried to be the man my mother wants me to be?
0: Well, and and in that, I think he realizes that logic can be used to make an argument first about anything, mm-hmm. but logic doesn't have compassion. It doesn't have wisdom, and it can't tell us what is right or moral. Which is, I think, a huge jump for that character to be able to realize that, which, you know, I think is so important for anybody to be able to realize is that, you know, you can't find out what is right just by doing, you know, this logical progression. Because you can logic anything. Sure. It's easy. And and I think we've seen, you know, uh, throughout history, many people who have logicd many things that we would consider abhorrent or evil.
2: True. Sure. Well, of course, what makes this particular uh, incident, this particular adventure so troublesome for Spock is that just at the moment where he's trying to embrace compassion, he's trying to you know embrace this um, his mother's way of approaching a problem, let's say, he does it at the one moment when this is exactly the wrong choice. That doesn't mean <laughs> yeah. it's always the wrong choice. It doesn't mean that it's wrong to embrace compassion, but he is particularly disturbed by the fact that at the one moment now where in the aftermath of a muck time, having experienced the Ponfar, which he thought he was going to be spared, having been betrayed by Tepring, and everything else, like suddenly his logic is completely upended. And the one moment he tries compassion, it blows up in his damn face. And now he's got to question everything. He's like, have I screwed up again? Was compassion wrong? Is compassion always wrong? Should I have stuck to logic? He is completely blown up here emotionally because he's basically been through the mill. you know, on Vulcan. They basically just made mincemeat out of his, uh, his psyche. Uh, even though he's very restrained about it, he's clearly mixed up <laughs> after a muck dime. And now here he tries this one moment of, all right, let's try it the other way. And bam, it just goes completely hideously wrong. And it's just, it's like, wow. It's like, this is like the worst possible outcome. Uh, And of course, this is something he'll have to grapple with. And you get the feeling that as after the story is over, he'll continue to be grappling with this. He'll have to come back to this, probably this moment and revisit it again and again, thinking, you know, was it wrong or was it just that it was the right decision, but it didn't produce the desired outcome? you know is the fact that it didn't produce the outcome that i expected or desired that doesn't necessarily make it the wrong choice you know maybe there was an, an intrinsic value to compassion regardless of the outcome and so this mm-hmm. is a question he's going to have to wrestle with probably for years
0: well and and the the, the most i think it's such a strange thing for spock because at that moment when he's trying to embrace compassion, the most unlikely person teaches him about how to use logic and compassion together in a way that makes much more logical sense, which is what Mara tells him. Yes.
2: Well, she's a weird thing in that she's here she is. She's a Klingon, part of a warrior species or a species that venerates a warrior culture and aesthetic. But within that warrior culture and aesthetic, She is a scientist, a person of logic and reason and knowledge and calm evaluation. She is this sort of contradiction in terms, a Klingon scientist, a Klingon science officer. And yet, there she is. And so she's sort of like almost his opposite number, where she is from a culture that wants you to let out your emotions and run berserk, and yet she chooses... To be sort of, you know, this calm voice of reason. So, yeah, she's an interesting sort of foil for him in that moment.
0: I, I loved that. Uh, and I, I thought it really uh, helps the entire story for that to, to be the case, because, um, you know, it, it it really brought home, I think, um, the idea of showing the Klingons and the Federation have to learn to deal with each other. In a way that they're not used to, which is with respect, Mm -hmm. which is to, you know, um, obviously uh, we're in 2023, but Avatar is another huge film again, uh, 13 years later. And the whole phrase Mm -hmm. there, you know, I see you um, and that they are able to see one another as people. They're not othering each other. Um, Because then you underestimate people. And to me, I loved the way in which you wove that into the story. Because first, you know, Kirk and Kang respect each other. um, Mm -hmm. And they do it begrudgingly, but they they know one another. But the rest of the Federation and the Klingon officers and people are having to learn to do this, especially there on the planet as they have to learn to work together. And Mm -hmm. to me, that was just a wonderful microcosm of something to which, you know, Star Trek does very well, which is to help us see ourselves and the way in which we could do things better.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, part of the impetus for that was the notion that the Klingons, the Klingon Empire and their culture, although they seem or they were cast originally as, you know, the antagonist, the other, the the uh, opposite of us, they weren't the opposite of us. What What led to the conflict when you really got down to it, as you learn more about them, is that we were too similar. We were both, you know, predator hominids. Uh, We were both pursuit predators. Uh, We were both imperialistic, but just in different ways. The Klingons like to conquer, and we like to sort of assimilate through uh, economic uh, incentive. Uh, But in the end, you know, both species are capable of great violence when pushed to the wall. Uh, But both are also capable of great nobility. Uh, it's like we wanted to cast the Klingons as these savage animals. Well, that's how they saw us. They saw us as creatures without honor, and we saw them as creatures without compassion. Well, we were both wrong. They were wrong, and we were wrong. And It's not that they don't have compassion; it's that they have to. You have to earn their respect, and they were wrong about us. We do have honor, but we manifest it in different ways, and it's not our principal uh, modus operandi. Uh, but the two cultures are more alike than they are different. And in a strange way, that was what led to so much of their conflict. They were too alike to get along. It's like having two uh, aggressive personalities. They're going to clash rather than you know uh, cooperate very often at first. Uh, they have to learn first to respect each other before they can become partners. Uh, So that was part of, you know, an important part of it. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, they're having to learn to see each other without othering each other. I think there's a mention of that in the dialogue where I think it's after the two, like the strike team and the landing party have met in the shuttle. uh, I can't remember the exact line of dialogue, but there is something to the effect of one, one side basically acknowledging, you know, that it, This is, you know, we don't want to open fire on each other for no damn good reason, you know. And uh, or I think it's maybe, you know, Spock or Sulu, somebody acknowledging that the Klingons are people just like them and you shouldn't be taking their lives cavalierly. And Mara saying, you know, I'm glad to hear you say that, because I think maybe not all of your shipmates and your, you know, your Federation Starfleet uh, comrades would feel the same way. So. Uh, maybe I've got that reversed. It's it's one of those moments. I know it's in there somewhere. I'm trying to remember who said what, and I can't remember. But yeah, the I, premise, of you're it, right because I remember it, it too. <laughs> <laughs> it's in there somewhere. <laughs> damn it, it's in there somewhere. But yeah, I mean that's the the big idea is the two sides. Like I deliberately, for instance, set up these parallels between the way the two landing teams are working. The landing party is trying its hardest not to disturb the environment, not to leave traces behind you know not to disturb the culture or whatever uh whereas the klingons are like hey that might be tasty shoot it but in the end they're both tramping through this alien landscape uh with the intent of blowing something up i mean their goals are pretty much the same there there's maybe some small procedural differences but they're not that different the two teams when you look at them in microcosm they're both filled with people who are sniping at each other because they're stuck in the rain, walking through mud, and they're taking it out on each other. The Klingons yap at each other, and the Starfleet landing party yap at each other. They're not that different. And that was the whole point. And the idea was that I wanted the reader to understand by the end of the story that the start, the, the Klingon strike team down on the planet are not a bunch of monsters they're not a bunch of bad guys that we just have to get rid of the whole point was to say these are actually a pretty fun bunch of guys these are actually some pretty decent folks uh and for us to sort of learn uh by the end of the story that they were capable of great honor and great courage
1: And i love how you had mara kind of i don't know confront spock and the and the starfleet team about the Prime directive specifically, since they were so caught up right. in it themselves, like oh, any bent blade of grass. And I think even Spock mentioned something about you know the butterfly effect and how it could just totally throw off you know the future evolution on this planet. Um, but I really liked Mara's kind of explanation of her understanding of the Prime directive and kind of throwing it back in the faces of Starfleet saying. You know, you preach all this, but you're if you interpret it in your own way, however it suits you. And I just I mm-hmm. liked how it just she, as an outsider, was able to put Starfleet in their place and really hold them accountable to their own rules and say, if you're going to follow the Prime Directive, follow it, or let's just get this mission done. And I, exactly. It, it was just really neat to see an outsider see, say that to them because I feel like we haven't really seen that before.
2: I think, you know, part of the inspiration there was, you know, I've seen this in, uh, like, works by Tom Clancy and uh, uh, Robert Ludlum where we sometimes take our adversary for granted. We assume they don't know us, that they're as foreign to us as we are to them, yada, yada, yada. And it doesn't occur to us that just as we have been studying them to learn their ways so we can learn how they think, they study our ways and learn how we think. They know our laws. They know our regulations. They probably got a copy of Starfleet Regulations Manual, just like we do. And they read it and they know us as well as we know ourselves. And sometimes better, as Mara points out, she's like, you interpret this rule, this primary regulation, in whatever way suits you in the moment. She says, but here is the reality. This situation has already been compromised. This culture is already compromised. Uh, Technically, to honor the Prime Directive, you would want to undo the contamination and restore the status quo that existed prior to the emergence of the Godhead. The best way to do that is eliminate the Godhead and destroy its followers before its ideology spreads. Contain the damage here so that it doesn't contaminate the rest of the culture. And there's no argument against that. It actually is the correct answer. And she also points out Your prime directive does not forbid you from defending yourself, no matter how primitive the culture, if they're throwing deadly weapons at you, spears, rocks, whatever, arrows. Your own regulations say you are allowed to use deadly force to protect yourselves. You don't just have to stand there and get killed. Turn the other cheek does not mean stand there and wait to get hit again. And they're right. She's right. And that's the you know, there's that sort of galling moment when you realize, you know, the devil can quote scripture for his own purposes. Well, the Klingons can quote Starfleet regulations, and sometimes they do it better than we do. Mm-hmm. And Spock, in the end, is forced to just admit with one word. Logical. Yeah, it's like, The moment that. he says <laughs> that, it's like, and I concede the point. <laughs> Game, set, match. <laughs> exactly.
0: Well, I, so one of the things, too, that you did really interestingly and you have to walk this this weird tightrope that star trek canon has created which is the klingons themselves and having the different types of klingons and the fact Mm -hmm. that you know here kang looks like he did in tos whereas we know in D space nine he's not gonna look like that and so uh i just what is your philosophy on kind of dealing with that Um, Because, again, Star Trek itself just created a mess of that whole situation.
2: Well, I mean, normally, if, uh, for instance, let's say uh, we'd had the DS9 thing going on, and uh, let's say the episode Trials and Tribulations, the DS9 TOS crossover had never happened, and Star Trek Enterprise had never happened, if there had never been a canon explanation for the change in the physical appearance of the Klingons, I probably would not have addressed it at all. I just wouldn't have even said anything about it. And particularly, if not for the fact that we had seen Kang, Kor, and Koloth in different appearances later in DS9 in Blood Oath. But what really sort of pushes it over the edge are two things. First, we have the DS9 episode Trials and Tribulations, where our characters go back in time, to the 23rd century, to the K-9 space station, and they see the Klingons of that era. And they look like the Klingons of that era that we remember from TOS. And they're confused. They're like, those are Klingons? Mr. Worf, what's going on? And he simply, he lampshades it with we do not speak of it to outsiders. It's like it's this big shameful thing that he just he can't even get into. It just It's so galling that it would take an hour and a half to explain and he just can't do it. And it's hilarious, and it lampshades it, and you move on. We accept, okay, Klingons look different then. Fine. Even if that was all there was, I might have let it go. But Star Trek Enterprise... I believe in either third or fourth season, did a whole augment story arc where they dealt specifically with the fact that the Klingons thought that there was something to be gained by attempting to adapt the human augment retrovirus for genetic engineering because they thought it might allow them to improve Klingons in a similar fashion. But it had the unintended effect of making the Klingons appear more human than Klingon, which was something they found aesthetically grotesque. And so these people, it was established, you know, they got sort of treated like second-class citizens, they and their descendants, who carried this mutation forward. Uh, And I don't remember if it was established in the show or if this was a creation of uh, one of my fellow authors, but somebody eventually somewhere along the line came up with the Klingon expression meaning the unhappy ones, which is what refers to the ones who don't have the forehead ridges uh, and who have the paler complexions or whatever. And it refers to the more human looking Klingons who were treated as second class citizens. Well, at that point it became canon. It's like they acknowledged it. They said, all right, this is the explanation. This is how it happened. This is why they look like this. It happened at this point in history. It uh, persisted through this point, at which point genetic, Uh, retrovirus and retroviral engineering was used to reverse the effects on the descendants of the original Kucha and the Kucha descendants were restored to their uh, original Klingon or what should have been their original Klingon appearance. And that was the end of that. So I'm like, okay. So at this point in the 23rd century, that hasn't happened yet. We haven't undone it. It's a century past when it happened, give or take it's a century before when it can plausibly be fixed, give or take. So we're right smack in the middle. I have the explanation. I have it from Star Trek Enterprise. It's canon. So I run with it. I put it in. I've got the name, which is established from other books. No argument there. Licensing was signed off on that decades ago. So I put that in. And I just, I gloss over it. And the only reason I sort of put it in there really was there was there was two reasons one is just again for the purpose of the reader in case it's a reader who is more familiar with late trek i want them to understand why these klingons look different but second uh it's also for just the fact that you know i i want to make sure that we you know acknowledge you know the, the 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 canon continuity of it that i'm not just sort of making crap up uh you know, for the sake of making crap up. I mean, there's a reason why these folks uh, are struggling to prove themselves. These are the second class citizens of the Klingon empire who are serving in a segregated military, which is sort of like a reference to the Tuskegee airmen, uh, the black divisions who were segregated out and couldn't serve with white units on D-Day uh, and other similar sort of units from World War II. Um, so it was sort of a commentary on that. Um, And so, again, if it hadn't been for the fact that it was, it hadn't established history and I had actual canon material to work with, I probably just would have glossed over it. But it's there, and I was asked to acknowledge it specifically by the editors, so I did.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, like, one of the things that all of the authors have done so well is find a way to appeal to people who may just be picking this up for the first time is their first star Trek book. And you know, those that have been doing this and watching star Trek for their entire life and reading all of these books and, and you have to acknowledge both. And, and I, I, I really appreciated the way that you handled that. Cause it, it, again, you're having to work all of these different divergent things together. And, um, and at the same time, I think what it, it really helped with the story um you know it it also gave motivation i think even to kang you know of just why he's trying to do what he's trying to do you know he's trying to ra- rise in the ranks of the the klingon empire to show himself to be worthy and honorable enough to be a part of um you know not just his subgroup but the entire empire you know and so i think all of that really helps with even just working there with the motivation so that's that's a way in which you get to, to use all that convolutedness to your advantage for the story.
2: Absolutely. Anything that deepens the character's struggle, deepens their identity, uh, is good in that, it, you know, very often it helps the reader relate to them and see them as a more complete person. Uh, and that's an important thing. And part of all that also was deepening the relationship between Kang and Mara. It was evident if you just rewatch, for instance, Day of the Dove, how much uh, Kang loved his wife, how important she was to him, and more importantly, how much he respected her as a person, as an officer, as a Klingon. So I made sure that when I was writing from his point of view and having him think about Mara to capture the fact that he is completely in love with her he's completely in love with his wife he adores her but he also respects her Uh, and at the same time you know he knows that if he lost her he would be shattered he would probably not be the man he would ever he could not be the same man ever again Um, so he is genuinely worried about his wife and again that's the sort of thing that takes Kang from being this cardboard villain you know the antagonist of the week And now it makes him another person who has legitimate feelings, legitimate concerns, worries, things we can relate to that make us understand him and realize he's not just this, you know, he's not some manifestation of evil. He's just a guy with a job to do who's been forced to do it from the other side. And he's even questioning now his job Like by the end of the episode or the end of the book, I should say. He is forced to confront like the fact that this Starfleet team, members of it, risked their lives fighting monsters and competing against nature itself to save his beloved wife. And now he's starting to think, is it possible that everything my government has told me about the Federation might just be propaganda? Maybe they're lying to me. They say these people have no honor, but I see what they just did. I don't doubt a word that my wife tells me. What else is this but honor? So if they've lied to me about that, what else is my government lying to me about? And this is the moment where he's starting to think for himself. He's starting to become more than just a pawn. This is a guy who's realizing there's a game afoot here, and I'm not being told all the truth. I need to dig deeper.
0: Yeah, I I love that. Whole section and I loved to just the way in which the whole dealing with the Shaddai and it really creates this question for everyone involved was Nancy Reagan right should you just say no <laughs> you know should you just say no to certain knowledge is are there is there knowledge or are there tools that are so powerful and so uncontrollable that They become evil, which is such a huge metaphysical question, you know, um, and Star Trek deals with those every once in a while. I think in many ways, Deep Space Nine kind of dealt with those type of metaphysical questions the best. But I loved that that question was here because, you know, people might not love the movie, but this is also a part of the kingdom of the Crystal Skull. At the end, Spalco is saying she wants to know. Um and the aliens are feeding her all the information, and what does it do? It explodes her brain. It's too much. <laughs> Indy, on the other hand, with all of his experiences over the last, you know, however many years, realizes there are some things to which we should just not meddle with. And I loved that that was a question here because, you know, Star Trek tends to err on the side of the fact that whatever tool it is, whatever knowledge it is, it can be used for good. It's It's just about how it's used. But there really is that question. Is there something that's so powerful, so uncontrollable that it's, it's basically evil to us that we shouldn't even try to touch it?
2: Right. Are there some technologies that just by their very nature, is it possible for a technology, a science, a device to be intrinsically evil in its purpose? When you have something like a mindless planet killer that doesn't seem to have an off switch that has no wind condition that halts its rampage, that has clearly, I mean, according to the dialogue in uh, Doomsday Machine, has crossed intergalactic distances in search of more things to destroy. Who the hell makes something like this? Who comes up with the plan for the Doomsday Machine, the killer space burrito that eats planets? Who comes up with this and thinks, but we're going to use it for good. What? How the hell do you use that for good? If you can't turn the damn thing off, if you can't say just eat that one planet where the Borg are, let's say, if it does that, but then it keeps going, you've invented something evil. (laughs) The machine may not have a conscience. It may not have a will, It may not have any sense of morality it may not have anything more than a set of parameters find next system eat next system to the machine that's just an objective it's like telling an ai you know optimize to make the most paper clips possible and then it destroys human civilization in an effort to make the most paper clips uh was it an evil thing well not from the ai's point of view and maybe it seemed like a benign instruction that you gave it at the outset But if you create something powerful enough that it deals out death, destruction, genocide on a galactic or intergalactic scale, and you've got no way to stop it, congratulations, you've invented a mindless evil. That's what you've done. And you have to sort of face that, that sometimes there are certain technologies that, depending on how you implement them, they are intrinsically evil and maybe should not be invented. I mean, teaching robots now with AI to carry weapons and autonomously make decisions about whether or not to kill human beings. No, I know you think that's a great idea for you know warfare in places where you'd rather not send your soldiers, but you know what? No, you should not be teaching robots that move like dogs that have 25 or 50 millimeter guns mounted on their back You should not be teaching them to autonomously kill human beings. I'm sorry. Even if you have a way to shut it off, what if it gets out of contact range and now it just goes on autopilot? Does it go dead or does it just keep hunting? What if it malfunctions and it just keeps hunting? We have to ask ourselves the question, what if this piece of technology ceases to function as we intend it to, or ceases to respond or re- acknowledge the command and control apparatus that it was meant to respond to, what does it have the potential to become? In the case of, say, you know, a couple of killer robots, maybe they have the potential to be something that wipes out or murders thousands of people, which is a horrific evil in and of itself. Taken to the next extreme, of course, you have the planet killer, if the command and control apparatus that reigns it in is gone, or fails for any reason, you now have an unstoppable destroyer of star systems, an unstoppable destroyer of populated planets. You've done something stupid. You've made something evil. You have to ask what is the unintended consequence, and I think that that's what Spock is grappling with. And you know, it takes Kirk to sort of say, you know, when he when Kirk, you know, Spock asks who would make this and Kirk in that moment of empathy that Kirk kind of has, has to be the one to say it was made by somebody who was scared, somebody who was afraid. And that's often when we make our worst decisions is when we're scared. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, there there's so much that goes into that. And and I think it really comes down to, and you know, again, the sci-fi does this so well, it's the question that, you know, you get asked in Jurassic park. Right, we're right. so preoccupied with whether or not we could. We, we never asked about... if we should.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah.
0: And and that there is such a thing as you should or should not do a thing because like this whole book is about that idea of how do you figure out what is right and wrong in these really big situations. You know, it's what mm-hmm. uh, Kirk is. Uh, trying to figure out it's what Spock is trying to figure out and like you said in the end that's kind of what Kang is coming down to right like what is right and wrong and who do I trust like am I being lied to am I, I mean there's so many big questions and this is the thing that we all kind of love about Star Trek and Star Trek books and and sci-fi in general is being able to explore these type of questions in a way that help us think um, and you know put them in our face in a way that we can then be able to think about because they're, they don't have the baggage of all of the other things that we have in our world. So, yeah, I mean, I I love that. Um, and so, well, uh, David, I'm really uh, thankful that we've gotten a chance to, to spend the last hour talking through this book because, you know, we were talking before we recorded, but I, I love the book. I know Casey said he did as well. Uh, and so, but, As always, we always want to give you a platform to talk about anything that you're working on, anything you've got coming up, anything that you want to promote for yourself as well. Uh, And of course, you know, where people can find you so they can keep track of everything that's going on with David Mack.
2: Well, I don't really have much coming down the pike at the moment. Uh, And the one sort of thing, the one thing I'd like to add about Harm's Way is I know from what we've been talking about over the past hour, this sounds like it might be kind of a... Heavy book, or you know, a philosophically uh grim book, or whatever, but it's really not in many ways. Although these are deep questions that are uh entertained and tangled with by our characters, Harm's Way is meant to be a fun adventure romp, it's full of lighthearted banter, it's fun of uh high speed action sequences moments of big action, uh, big flurries it's moments. It has small moments of wit and humor, uh, moments of problem solving. It's very Star Trek in that regard. And it's not supposed to be dark or heavy or depressing. It is meant to be a fun light adventure, uh, with, you know, uh, a, a, a sense of fun to it. Uh, I mean, I had genuine fun writing this book in a way I haven't had, Uh, writing a star trek novel in a long time it was just a real joy to sit down and play with these characters again to revisit some of those beloved characters from vanguard who i loved creating and writing so much so i just i just genuinely had a lot of fun writing this book and i hope that comes through to uh to those who pick it up and, and read it as far as what i have coming down the pike uh no novels at the moment the uh, market has sort of endured a terrible slowdown because of the pandemic. Um, What I do have in the works are five different works of short fiction in uh, a variety of different uh, publications. Most of them, they're all commissioned. Uh, They were all commissioned stories. Four of them are for anthologies, and one is uh, for an upcoming issue of Star Trek Explorer magazine, assuming the editor approves the manuscript that I submitted. Uh, But let's see here. There's a story that I wrote uh, a while back, maybe almost 18 months now, maybe more, uh, for an anthology put together by my friend, fellow Star Trek author, Keith DeCandido. And that's called The the Four-something-of-the-Apocalypse. And the idea is a series of humorous short stories, uh, at least most of them, I think, are humorous, uh, where you have different groupings of four something or others uh instead of the four horsemen of the apocalypse you get for instance you know the uh the four lunch ladies of the apocalypse or uh (laughs) you know the the four used car salesmen of the apocalypse i wrote the four development executives of the apocalypse uh so that is probably you can probably imagine for yourself what that's going to come down to be like uh in addition to that i was invited to contribute a story to a uh, Space Western anthology uh, that's being uh, edited by a gentleman named David Boop. Uh, That's hopefully going to be out next year. I don't know if it's publicly announced yet, so I don't want to say more than that. Uh, What was publicly announced was the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers. Uh, A few months back, kick-started and crowdfunded an anthology called Double Trouble, The premise of it was they invited authors, such as myself and other tie-in writers, to find characters from public domain fiction, public domain sources, Uh, basically anything sort of created like in the 19th century or earlier, uh, and do a mashup, find two characters and find a way to put them together. Uh, And the two that I chose, I picked the magician Prospero from William Shakespeare's The Tempest, and I teamed him up with Don Quixote de la Mancha by Miguel de Cervantes. And so it is the delusional knight uh, teamed up with the uh, magician uh, Prospero. And uh, it's a strange little piece. It's, you know, it tries to honor both the absurdity of Cervantes' novel, uh, the sort of whimsy, but also the gravity of The Tempest. And in the end, sort of try to represent a, a humorous fusion of the two. Uh, And then there's an anthology that's being put together. Again, I'm not even sure I should say the title, uh, but that's being put together by an editor named Henry Hertz. And uh, it's set in World War II. It's World War II-themed stories that involve, in one way or another, fantastical creatures, monsters, something of that nature. Uh, I don't want to say what my story is about or which creature it features. I think he would probably like me to keep that under my hat. Uh, But I'm very happy with the way that story turned out. Uh, So that's in the pipeline. So those four are all in the pipeline. Then the fifth one is a uh, Star Trek short story. Uh, It's one of several that I pitched to the editor at Star Trek Explorer magazine. He asked me to write this particular one of the various ones I pitched. I've submitted it. I have not yet heard if it has met with his approval. I am standing with fingers crossed, hoping that he likes the way I put the story together and that it will get a green light. But I won't know that for sure for a couple of weeks or maybe a month or so. So that's what I have coming down the pike is five different pieces of short fiction, uh, each in a different publication of some kind. Um No TV work. I mean, my consultancy is long since done on both Lower Decks and Prodigy. I've been done there for months. Um, No books come down the pike. haven't sold anything in a long time. I'm in sort of a dry, uh, I mean, well, let's be honest. I'm in sort of a desert at the moment. I'm sort of wandering the wasteland. Uh, I've been forced out into the wilderness where I must wander until I find the burning bush of inspiration and then... Fight my way back into the publishing industry. Are you uh, saying but,
0: that you live on Nimbus Three
2: right now? <laughs> I should be. So, I just should be so lucky. At least I had a bar. <laughs> you know. Uh, me, at least I could visit. You know, Ambassador Jitanian. That's for all you uh, Vanguard fans. That's true. Yeah. Uh, but uh, oh, no, I have an idea that I'm hopefully going to try to bring to life uh, for a novel. It's I have to come up with the first few chapters and. Get it over to my agent and see if it has any legs at all. I don't know. Maybe it's great. Maybe it's incredibly stupid and I just don't understand. Uh, I'm sure my agent will not hesitate to tell me which one it is.
0: <laughs> Isn't that what makes a great agent? Ah, this is yes, crap.
2: The, the, well, the whole point is that the agent <laughs> you know, was supposed to look at it and say, this is incredibly stupid uh this cannot possibly be sold and if it does it will not sell for any amount of money that will be worth your time i recommend you try again with something more commercial maybe you could try writing this uh or if it's good then it's the agent's job to say well done here's a cookie i'm going to go see if i can get somebody to publish this <laughs> and then there's the middle ground which is where you're more likely to land which is the edge it says okay, I, I see what you're going for. It doesn't completely suck, but boy, does it need some work. You need to rewrite this and this and this and then this, and I don't understand this character at all. This line doesn't land. You think this line is funny, but it's actually racist and offensive, and you should really cut that before you get found out. Uh, and then you should rewrite this and try to get it all done in three weeks and get it back to me, and then we'll see if we can get it out in the market. And then you go, all right, and... Uh, you know, I'll try not to blow my brains out, and they say that's nice, and then they hang up on you. <laughs> so, well,
0: I I know that I'm looking forward to hopefully you getting the opportunity to uh, write more Star Trek books, and uh, I would like Casey, to. Yeah, Casey, I think you'd agree we'd like to have more new Star Trek books.
2: I, I I mean, it's not that I have a lack of ideas for Star Trek novels. It's just that uh, a variety of factors, as you may have saw seen in the news, there was this long. Running thing where for a while Penguin Random House was attempting to negotiate a merger with Simon and Schuster, which is the parent company that owns gallery books, which publishes Star Trek novels. Now, had that gone through, who knows what would have happened. There may have been many redundancies of personnel. There would have been a purging of personnel, a merging of departments, and then suddenly you would have a tie-in department at one company handling both Star Trek and Star Wars at the same time. Who knows what that might have led to. Uh, But what happened was the Department of Justice stepped in with an antitrust lawsuit and blocked the merger. And eventually the case was decided in favor of blocking the merger. So the two companies will not be merging. And the problem was that during this period when the lawsuit uh, with the Department of Justice was being argued and decided, uh, which took a considerable amount of time, close to a year and a half, uh, nobody wanted to make any firm decisions. Nobody wanted to sign any new contracts. Nobody wanted to extend any licenses. Uh, As a result, a lot of things were just allowed to sort of run out the clock and uh, resulting in a situation now where, as far as I know, there are only two Star Trek novels that have been commissioned and written uh, that are on the publication schedule for the coming year. The first, which I believe drops in February, is uh, the Higher The High Country, which is a Star Trek Strange New Worlds novel. The first novel based on that series. That's by John Jackson Miller. It's coming out in hardcover ebook and unabridged digital audiobook. That'll drop in February. And then I believe Dayton Ward has a new Star Trek Discovery novel, which is coming out in May. Uh, I'd have to check the date on that. Could be April, could be May, could be June, but sometime then spring, summer, whatever. Exciting new Discovery novel uh, by Dayton. But as far as I know, those are the only two Trek books in the pipeline. As far as I know, nothing beyond those two has been commissioned. So Even if they commission something tomorrow, you won't see it till 2024. So you're probably only going to get two Star Trek novels this year. Most likely anything new is going to be 2024. Um, It's hard to say whether they'll be doing more novels based on Picard. I imagine they want to, but there are all sorts of issues with not wanting to step on the show producers toes. Um, And there's some tricks, you know, where. As much as we would love to do stuff with some of these characters, the show producers have their own long-term visions and aspirations for some of these story arcs. And so they've declared certain elements, certain story elements, certain characters, and whatever, uh, off limits to the tie-in group for the time being so that they can have free reign to develop them on their side, which is fair. It's their creations. They can decide how the toys get played with.
0: Um, well and Star Wars has been kind of doing the same thing. Uh sadly, and I mean, yes. It, yeah. And it makes sense, you know. Um, you know, Casey and I have talked on the show many a times right now, just over the last, you know, year what they might do, you know, since Picard is ending and mm-hmm. you know, where they might go with storylines because there's so much of the twenty first century that we don't know now because there's so much that hasn't been filled in. Uh but part of that so, is because they yeah.
2: don't want us filling it yeah. in. Yeah.
0: Of course, of course, they because want to they, for themselves. Yeah. only when they yeah. think
2: they're done, would they let us run rampant through that uh, playground? Yeah. Uh, and I don't blame them. Again, uh, it makes perfect sense. You don't want tie in writers coming in and creating something that's going to be out of sync with the brand in just a year or two. If you can avoid it. Um, that said, I mean, I would love to, you know, if not write a story about, let's say, even if I can't do a story about seven of nine and the Ferris Rangers or Fenris Rangers. I would love to do a story just about the Fenris Rangers in general. Uh, But, you know, they've sort of taken that toy off the table for now. I would, you know, love to follow in the footsteps of John Jackson Miller and maybe do a strange new Worlds novel. If they'll let me, I have an idea, uh, which, you know, or at least a ghost of an idea ready to pitch, but it depends on them being open to hearing the pitch. Um, so again, you know, it's not that there aren't ideas. It's just, you know, there's just no time. I uh and then of course I wish I could get in at Star Wars, but you know, I, I've been trying to knock down that door for 12 years, 15 years. I don't think I'm ever getting in over there. I mean, I would love to do a novel based on Bad Batch. I love that series. I'd love to do a Mandalorian novel. I mean, I could do a great I could do a great Mandalorian novel that features uh, you know, Mayfeld, you know, I, I would love to do a Mayfeld novel just, you know, a story about that guy. Uh, I could do a story about just pretty much any era. I could do an Ahsoka novel. I'd love to do that. I'd love to get my hands on a, a Cassian Endor novel, you know, something you know involving the spies and the rebell- early rebellion and whatnot. There are so many different things going on over there that I find compelling and exciting and that I'd love to get involved with, and yet I just cannot seem to get my foot in that door. Uh, it's really disheartening.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's a it's a tough tough door to get in. Uh, I yeah, would say so I, Star would, Trek. I would I would I would welcome you being over there because well, never mind. That's uh, a whole yeah. podcast. Uh, I, but I I, I, I I will say this. You know, one of the things I would actually love to see. I don't know why they you know for Star Trek books, if you want to go to a place where you can touch stuff that's not going to hurt anything, just go between. Six in generations, or six in the Lost Era. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because there's so so I think the reason they don't go there more
2: often, sadly, is that they just don't sell very well.
0: I yeah, I'm sure that's it's a
2: harder it's a harder sell because you're dealing with an era that is unfamiliar to the viewers. Uh, It's harder to find characters that they're able to relate to who are going to be effectual in that time period for storytelling. I think, you know, There's a, I think there's still an uh, area to be mined with uh, Vanguard and TOS, you know, maybe another crossover like this in a year or two, if I come up with another good idea, something that doesn't just trod the same ground, maybe something that's a little more to the Vanguard side of the equation than the uh, TOS side. But again, that would depend on how well this book sells and whether the publisher wants to do another one and... Uh, I mean, if there were other tie-in licenses out there that happen to be listening or if somebody wants to pass the word along, boy, would I love to write a novel based <laughs> on Leverage. <laughs> Leverage has been making this great comeback on the IMDb uh, freebie channel or whatever, which is now through Amazon Prime. Uh, there's a new version of the show, Leverage Redemption. Most of the same cast is back. Uh, second season, some of the uh, creator producers from the original show are now back with the show. Folks like John Rogers and Chris Downey and Dean Devlin are all back. Um, And I love, love Leverage. Love the original series. I love the new revival series. Uh, So, I mean, that's on my wish list. Star Wars, an Indiana Jones novel would be great. Uh, You know, I dream of getting my hands on James Bond, but, you know, that's next to impossible. But, you know, guy can dream.
0: I mean, that sounds like Uh, the name for the book, Next to Impossible.
2: So. The X twenty four book, yeah, do do new twenty four book. Got oh yeah, just yeah, I mean, started, They would Yeah, I, I rogue was actually you know the first novel of mine that won a scribe award. So, I, uh,
0: well, see there we go. You heard it here, folks. The name of the show, <laughs> David Mack for hire, uh, <laughs> and uh, please hire it because I mean we love his. We uh, gosh, I, I love your books, I David. Have bills to pay so. so. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly.
2: I work quickly. I, I I'm pretty amenable <laughs> to edits.
0: But I I do I I always appreciate you know you and Dayton and Una and everybody else you know you you all are so generous with your time and we really do appreciate you coming on to talk about the behind the scenes of of creating these stories to which we love and. We're pulling for you to to write more Star Trek books, and um, we're excited uh, that this is out. And, uh, you know, I, I think I can heartily say um, this is a great Star Trek book, and everybody should pick it up. If you love T.O.S., if you love Star Trek, this is a great book. And, Casey, I think, I think you'd say the same thing.
2: Yep. Couldn't say it better myself. Pick it up. Awesome. Awesome. Well, if folks want to find me on the internet, you know, on the interwebs or whatever, uh, the best place to start looking for me is probably my official website, which is davidmac.pro. That's davidmack, M-A-C-K dot P-R-O. And from there, you find links. You can just go to like the uh, the press kit page or whatever, uh, and you'll find links to all my different social media uh so i've got the usual i got a facebook author page i got an amazon author page i got a twitter uh i've got a mastodon thing now so i got a mastodon account and i've got social media accounts at a few other places that are likely to implode uh you never know maybe one of them will take off co host uh counter social hive you know who knows which one of these will actually still be here in a year uh so i'm on all of them and i'm waiting to see which ones live and which ones die. <laughs> I'm always on post. Uh, so There's a new one every on, day, David. <laughs> follow me on all of them. Follow me on none of them. Follow me on whichever one suits you best. Whichever works for you. It's all good. Uh, so, yeah, follow me on social media. I'm still on Twitter, despite it being a hell site. Uh, you know, if they want me out, they can kill me. Um, you know, they can, or they can cancel my account, whichever comes first. So I'll continue to be a thorn in the side of authority as long as I can. Um. But yeah, that's the best place to look for sort of announcement of new stuff. I tend to announce stuff on Twitter. Uh, but if I have like something like a new book coming down the pike and I'm able to announce it, I will usually, at the same time I'm announcing on social media, I'll put it on the front page of my website. So uh, you know, just follow Pro, and uh, you'll get all the latest news if there's anything to know.
0: Well, David, this was the perfect way to start the new year uh, with your new book. And thank, well, thank you, you so much for, for coming on, man. This is
2: so much fun. It is always a pleasure talking with you guys. I mean, I love the fact that we're able to sort of get into deep stuff like themes. We're able to get into psychology. We're able to get into the deep canon. I mean, the fact that you guys just you dig in so deep into what makes these books, not only what they are, but how they connect to Star Trek. Uh, it's just, it's one of those things where I don't really get to talk with many people in that level of depth about what goes into the creation of these stories. So it's always a pleasure to join you and others who understand and appreciate that aspect of what we do. So that
1: was super exciting. I, I kind of had to stay quiet most of the time and just listen to David, which I could do forever. Um, you know, I didn't mention this to him, but, you know, this is my first participation with an author interview. So that was a lot of fun and, you know, appreciate you setting it up and David for joining us. And now I can't wait to uh, hopefully, uh, you know, next time we get a Star Trek book, we'll get the author on here again. Yeah,
0: I can't wait uh, to like, you know, David mentioned the fact that we've got the new book by John Jack Miller coming out. Of course, Dayton Ward later on this year as well so we're very excited uh to be able to uh talk to them when that happens but you know casey you know we mentioned as well we i think we've got a banner year of literary treks coming up we've got some great things covering for you um some things we haven't done in a while covering some voyager books as well as some deep space nine books of course celebrating 30 years of Deep Space Nine this year uh, with the premiere of Emissary. As we're recording, we're actually recording on that date, (laughs) which is super fun. So I I think it's going to be a fantastic year.
1: Yep. Can't wait. And, um, you know, it just occurred to me, too, uh, you know, thinking back to our discussion on the comics, we should actually get Kirsten and and Mike on the show to talk about the comics uh, in in lieu of uh, some books that, you know, were – Going to kind of enter a fallow time of novels coming out, but we got lots of comics, so we should talk to some of them.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic idea. But before uh, we get out of here, Casey, <laughs> if anybody does want to catch up with you, see what else you've got going on, where would they find you?
1: I have not been on social media much lately, but when I am, I am on Goodreads and Letterboxd, Twitter, and Instagram at Knitting Trekkie. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook in the Babel Conference, poking around in there from time to time. And you can also find me doing another podcast called Mickey's Marvels, where we talk about everything under the Disney umbrella.
0: And I am all over social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 uh, You can find me here on the network uh, doing... A show called The 602 Club where we talk about all of the fandoms we love outside of Star Trek. Uh, you can also find me celebrating 30 years of D Space Nine over on The Orb with Chris Jones. You can also find me on Warp 5 talking about Star Trek Enterprise. Uh, Star Trek Picard is about to be back. And, of course, you'll be able to find me uh, on The Artificial Tango talking about Season 3 and... Strange New Worlds get some love as we talk about that over on Saddle Up. And when I'm not here on this network, you can find me over on the Nerd Party. Two shows. One is called Owlpost. I do that with Drea Kaufman, and we talk about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time, and that's completed. So you can listen to the whole thing now. And last but not least, doing aggressive negotiations with the great John Mills as we talk about Star Wars each and every week. But thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live
1: long and read on.
2: You call that light reading?
0: To each his own, number one.